There are many varying characteristics of the footballers we like to term mavericks. Off the pitch, they might live wild, high-octane lifestyles, often teetering on the edge of self-destruction. On the pitch, they keep us on the edge of our seat, true entertainers, often individualistic, perhaps in defiance of their manager's instructions. With a maverick, you never quite know what you're going to get. And it's this sense of unpredictability in their antics that makes them terrace icons and an absolute joy to watch. Ben Warden, how excited are you to discuss these players? But I am excited. I think Mavericks kind of make the beautiful game what it is. Um, they're the characters that stand out and that we remember for generations. And that was a lovely introduction to them, Arthur. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode. Exactly. You can get in touch with us at 11pod, that's the word, not the number, to let us know how ridiculous you think our choices are or whether you think they're actually quite good. Today, we're going to be playing a 4-3-2-1 Christmas tree formation, which I think is slightly unusual in itself and I think reflects well on these Mavericks. Okay, starting off between the sticks, Ben, who have you chosen as our goalkeeper? Yeah, and there were actually a couple that sprang to mind. I, I very nearly went for Arsenal's Jens Lehmann for this position. Oh, yes. But um, in the end, I went for another really iconic and incredibly successful character um, of a similar era, Fabian Barthez. Oh, brilliant choice, Ben. Very good. <laughs> very high profile for an 11 pick. That's what I thought. I mean, not necessarily a name that you would have forgotten um, because he was such a character. But I I actually think out of all the players I'm going to mention today, he was the one that, that first sprang to mind when I thought Maverick. So I really wanted to include him. Uh, he's had an illustrious career, like you say. Um, he was France's most capped player in the FIFA World Cups. 17 appearances at finals. Uh, that means he shares the record for the most World Cup final clean sheets as well with Peter Shilton. And um, that was 10. He won a World Cup. Uh, he won a Euros, two Premier Leagues, a Champions League with Marseille uh, and two Ligue 1 titles with Monaco. And he became nicknamed Le Divin Chauve, the divine bald one, due to his trademark shaved head. Uh, what was your recollection of watching Barthez during the uh, the early noughties and the late 90s? My recollection, by and large, is him being an absolute elite goalkeeper. My first time I saw him was for Manchester United in the early noughties. And he just seemed to have such command of his area, always barking out instructions, sort of almost sending the fear of God into his defence. And they just didn't want to make an error on his behalf to have so many caps for a nation that has so many incredible goalkeepers really shows what a great player he was. Yeah, you're, you're spot on, really. I mean, he was only five foot 11, so he wasn't tall for a goalkeeper, but he made up for it with his extreme athleticism, which I think was part of why he was such a maverick on the field. Whereas a lot of goalkeepers at the time would kind of stay on their line and stay safe and make the basic saves. Barthez was beyond eccentric. 
Uh, he would come out with a commitment that no other goalkeeper would show. He'd be diving around, uh, picking balls out the air that he had no right to win. And he was also quite eccentric in the way that he dealt with his defence. As you say, the barking of orders, um, his flamboyance and his sort of instinctive style, extreme agility, excellent reflexes. Um, and his propensity to throw in the odd spectacular save just for the cameras um, was also a, a significant part of his game. The, the flaw, really, in his character, though, is that he was often audacious with the ball at his feet uh, and he would attempt to dribble round strikers at any opportunity, which I suppose was part of the reason I, I thought of him as a maverick. While he received some plaudits for this, this stubbornness in his game was also criticised by a lot of pundits. And it perhaps came to the fore in 2001 uh, when he, he made two horrendous errors which gifted Arsenal a victory at Highbury uh, and specifically his countryman Thierry Henry two goals. Uh, and then almost immediately after he was playing in an FA Cup game uh, where he let Paolo Di Canio score against him whilst he appealed frantically for handball before the referee had blown a whistle. The offside, or the handball rather, sorry, wasn't given uh, and the goal stood and, and Manchester United were, were knocked out. In the dressing room, he was a character that was much loved, but also slightly bonkers. So much so that he asked to play and was successfully given the role as a winger uh, in Manchester United's pre-season tour of the Middle East. And when he wasn't playing football, he was a character too. He had a second career in motorsport. I actually knew this because I, I don't know whether listeners of the show know this, but I do work in motorsport insurance. And so ah. Fabian Barthez's name has cropped up quite a lot. I think he's competed in Le Mans 24-hour yeah. race uh, and several other sort of Porsche Carrera Cup races in France. And he actually has his own team as well. You're spot on. He's a complete petrol head. He's a smoker. Uh, and even during his playing days, he was he was smoking off the field. Uh, and he was known for his eccentric and superstitious personality as well. This particular tidbit I really enjoyed. Bartes often wore red briefs underneath his goalkeeping shorts. And usually they were made of the cut off sleeves of his goalkeeping jersey. That's Isn't that was the that... weirdest superstition ever? So red briefs when he played for United, but blue when he played for France and Marseille, or did he? I think specifically red. So he must have had a red goalkeeping jersey, and he cut the sleeves off to make his own briefs that he would wear under his goalkeeping shorts. Okay, maybe there's some sort of Chinese blood in Fabian Barthez because it's a it's a lucky color in China. I think very very unusual. The Cardiff City shirt colour change, I remember. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, his, um, his superstitions didn't end there. I mean, he would often be asked to wear the number one shirt naturally as a keeper, but he always chose to wear number 16. Um, and it's somewhat involved in the 1998 World Cup win. Laurent Blanc and Barthez had a superstition before every game where Laurent Blanc would kiss uh, Fabian Barthez's bald head as they were going out in the tunnel. Very, very good pick to start this Mavericks 11 off, Ben. Moving on to left back, I've decided to go for Fabio Aurelio. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten about him. He was one of those players who, I don't think he gets given enough credit for what 
talent he brought to the pitch at Anfield. He became the first Brazilian to sign for Liverpool in 2006. Considering Firmino and Alisson that they have today in their squad, it's quite surprising that it was only in 2006 that they had their first Brazilian. He signed from Valencia, whose coach Rafa Benitez he'd been with before, so he joined Benitez at Liverpool. He played a crucial role in Benitez's Valencia side that won the club's first La Liga title in 31 years in the 2001-2 season before going on to establish himself as one of the finest left-backs in Spain. He actually netted double figures in goals in the 2002-3 season from left-back, which is quite extraordinary. In his first two seasons, he played occasionally, but not regularly. He was behind Risa in the pecking order at Liverpool. However, when Risa left Liverpool in the summer of 2008, he had his window of opportunity and he grasped it firmly with both hands. He was able to become the first choice on the left side of Liverpool's back four. He had a few standout moments, um, a brilliant free kick in the 4-0 win against Man U in the 2008 season. After that season, it looked like he was an integral part of the Liverpool jigsaw. But as I said, those injuries that he started picking up, actually the first was rather unfortunate. It was while he was playing beach football with his children uh, and he picked up a rather bad injury. And I think that epitomised his bad luck, an unfortunate situation to get one. Such was the regularity of his injuries that Liverpool offered Aurelio a pay-as-you-play deal in May 2010. But I think he found that rather insulting. And so Benitez announced his departure. But then Benitez was replaced by Roy Hodgson, who one of his first acts as manager, he gave Aurelio a new two-year contract. But then he was almost instantly injured again. He had Achilles injuries, ligament injuries, uh, and he subsequently went to Gremio, where those injuries followed him. And I think that his maverick nature, I think, is shown by how unbelievably good and technical he was for a left-back. He had the attributes of a playmaker in midfield. Um, Benitez um, said this quote about him. He can cross the ball superbly, and he is maybe a better passer of the ball than Xavi Alonso, who is known as being one of the <laughs> finest dictators of play in centre midfield. You that's think that's got to be a load of rubbish. Yeah, that's no. insane. Genuinely, check out YouTube videos of him and see his vision. It is absolutely out of this world. Wow. Oh, I agree with Fabio Radio being a maverick pick, because I think at that time in the Premier League, left-back's primary role was defensive and Fabio Aurelio was one of the trailblazers really of a more technical technical positioning really built upon crossing the ball getting assists getting forward so I, I can I can get on board with the Maverick pick but my I guess my overriding memory of Aurelio was a disappointment really defensively and a, a failure to fill in for Risa adequately at left back. I don't remember I mean, him being a wonderful I, footballer. I didn't massively, but my trawling through online archive footage uh, through fan forums suggests that Liverpool had an absolute gem of a player on their hands who could potentially be spoken about in the same kind of breath as the likes of Ashley Cole 
and maybe Liverpool's current left back, Robertson. Because I, wow. I, I feel like he was genuinely that talented. He was just afflicted by all these injuries. Perhaps actually almost a better pick than Maverick might have been unfulfilled potential because that feels outrageous yeah Yeah, i mean liverpool fans are more likely to know than me i'll concede that but there's certainly not my overriding memory so interesting that that's come out indeed i definitely look forward to hearing uh your thoughts liverpool fans please do get in touch and tell ben how wrong he is yeah (laughs) i'd welcome that at 11 pod the word not the number so ben as you say he was a player who redefined the left back slot he bombed forward and crossed the ball from out wide racking up a lot of assists Uh, he played the position with such sophistication he was able to dictate and control games switching play with looping crossfield balls and began being an outstanding set piece taker I think again that displays his maverick nature just the ability Mm. to change games from one set piece his unpredictability, his judgment on the ball shows, I think, that he is just an outstanding player and uh, and I think an excellent pick for, for the left-back slot. Brilliant. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah, enjoyed reminiscing about that Brazilian left-back. Two centre-backs and I've got the first one. Uh, and we're going a bit back in time towards the late 80s, early 90s, a little bit before our time, Arthur, but I'm sure... Um, Some of our more experienced listeners will remember this name fondly. Brian Kilcline. I actually do know this name and it's because in my research, I picked him out as an outstanding choice. But I'd seen that you'd uh, you'd already selected him and I, I look forward to hearing why then. I nabbed him early. And I think Brian Kilcline was a maverick in terms of his character, really. Um, He famously said, I loved playing but the footballer is not who I am. And that really sums up Brian Kilcline's attitude to football. He was he was a lovable guy who was uh, an eccentric on and off the field and football never defined him. He really wasn't this kind of money-grabbing, uh, fame, lustful character that we might expect from footballers nowadays. He lifted the FA Cup for Coventry City in 1987 uh, he, he was six foot four. He had distinctive long hair and a bushy moustache. Uh, and he was nicknamed Killer Kilcline because of the way he played, really. He was an all action centre half. Uh, he'd fly into challenges. He was quite scary, really, in his appearance and the way he played the game. He would often prefer a diving header to a volley. Uh, even balls sort of only a metre off the ground. Brian Kilcline would be scrapping around trying to head the ball. And he actually played at a reasonable level for quite a while. He played for Coventry, uh, Oldham, Newcastle and Swindon. Um, a couple of those clubs we don't associate with the Premier League, but they were, of course, in there in the in the kind of late, uh, early 90s, rather. When Kilcline signed for Swindon Town in 1994, uh, he politely declined the Premier League club's offer to put them up, him and his wife, in a local hotel. And he instead decided to live on a canal boat. Can you you imagine that from a footballer nowadays? I think that's brilliant. That's just such a down-to-earth nature. The idea of someone like Kevin De Bruyne just just out on his houseboat... (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it really is strange. And there are all sorts of stories about like this that you can uh, read about Brian online. Here's another. I mean, he drove to training in a Dacia Duster, having just signed a new contract at Oldham, which had made Joe Royal respond saying, what on earth is that? To which he replied, I either had central heating or a nice car and central heating one, Joe. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, saying it how it is. During his time at Notts County, Kilcline found himself yellow carded during a game, even though he had no idea why. A few days later, the club received the league's report detailing why Killer had been cautioned. I opened it up, said Brian, and it said the player, Brian Kilcline, went over to the linesman and called him an egg. He says it could have been so much worse. It was totally out of character for me to call him an egg. So I think he's the only player to be yellow carded for that. It's just it's just mental. I mean, like every every story you read is sort of worthy of inclusion in the podcast to the extent that every time you read one, it almost falls flat because he is just such a character. I think it's perhaps a demonstration of the way the game has changed. You know, characters like that, I think, simply wouldn't be allowed to exist in today's day and age. And actually, the footballers in the Premier League just earn so much money that you wouldn't mm. have those kinds of sacrifices that he needs to make. Either he's freezing in winter or he has a nice car, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's a difficult situation. But I, looking at photos of him, what an iconic look as well. Yeah. What an iconic look. It is, it's one that's hard to describe, but he's certainly scary. And you can see where the nickname Killer came from, really. One of the best managers ever, really, Kevin Keegan, said... Brian was brilliant. He doesn't think the world owes him a living. A great pro. He got in among the players and helped turn our club around. He's the best signing I ever made for Newcastle United. So greatly respected on and off the pitch, but just a bit of a nutter, really. And the sort of player, like you say, Arthur, that wouldn't exist nowadays. Who's going to be partnering, Brian? Quite a bold choice. This is perhaps the first player chosen for the eleven without a Wikipedia page. <laughs> where have you found this guy considering the podcast we enjoy nostalgic names and i know our listeners do too you know bringing memories back this yeah. man will prompt no memories but <laughs> i feel he just he classifies as almost the definition of maverick in my eyes right his name is dario dubois oh dario dubois <laughs> No, yeah, I've, I've, I've no idea. <laughs> yeah. So this is a defender who played all of his career in the lower divisions of Argentinian football. Oh, OK. Yes, of course. But I can see why you've shown such an interest in him. I just feel his, na his maverick nature deserves to be commemorated in this podcast. He was a defender known for a very particular pre-match ritual. Right. Painting his face entirely a la kiss. Essentially, he had war paint. <laughs> he what? said, he said this war paint had the triple benefit of making him more fearless, making opponents more fearful and earning himself more recognition. So essentially, if you can picture this, he is appearing on the pitch with a face that's entirely white with kind of black, th black things around his eyes. And oh it, it is frankly a bit terrifying. He said, it gives you energy. You paint your face, you go to war and you kill your rivals. 
Goodness me. There were actually weekly rallies against Dubois with panicky spectators venting concern about the effect his unorthodox appearance would have on younger fans watching from the stands. To his eternal credit, he refused to change for anyone. The Argentinian Football Federation eventually had Dubois banned until he duly removed every inch of cosmetic application from his face. In response, he wore banned T-shirts underneath the club jersey and sported studded wrist cuffs instead, which is quite baffling oh considering goodness, in the Premier mate. League, you're not, you're not even allowed to have body piercings, I believe, let alone studded wrist cuffs. <laughs> that is absolutely terrifying. I mean, I don't, if you've ever watched wrestling, um, he, he's kind of looked like Sting. The wrestler yeah. Sting out of WCW. I mean, that's bonkers, right? He was an absolute character, uh, very unafraid to offend. In his pre-face paint days, he told a story of being stopped before a game by a director of his side's opponents and informed that he would get a small cash bonus if he let the side win. Dubois spat in the man's face and told him to eat grass, later calling him a bastard rat in the local media. <laughs> oh my goodness. On another occasion, he was playing for Lugano when a club sponsor failed to pay a promised victory bonus. So he covered their logo and most of the shirt in mud before the next game kicked off. There was then a game between Midland and a team called Excursionistas, in which he was sent off for a second book of offence, only for the referee on taking a yellow card out of his pocket to send a 500 peso note tumbling to the ground. Dubois picked it up, announced to the official that this is for the prize money you've stolen for me with this red card, you son of a bitch, and sprinted with it towards the dressing rooms, pursued by almost everyone on the pitch, the opposing <laughs> players, the referee, the fans got involved. He was just always entertaining the fans. In all, he made 146 career appearances for all these lower league Argentinian sides. And his peak infamy really was in sort of the late 90s, 1999 or so was, was his, were his peak years. He was just an absolute maverick and someone that we've, we got close to seeing in mainland Europe. Right. In the summer of 99, he spoke of a possible attempt to jumpstart his footballing career in Portugal. Um, but apparently his, his main motivation appeared to come from reading that Mario Jardel, then of Porto, had painted his face blue and white before the club's final game of the season without <laughs> getting punished. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. How did yeah. you find this guy? I don't really know. This podcast does take you quite funny places on the yeah. internet. Yeah. That's wicked. I'm really glad he's made the cut. And I can imagine... Um, him and Brian Kilcline forming one of the most terrifying centre-back partnerships this world has ever seen. <laughs> right back, and uh, I've picked Abel Xavier. Yes, wonderful. Yes. What an iconic-looking man. He was an iconic-looking man. Um, and, and sometimes I think we forget that he was actually a pretty good player. He was six foot two. So very tall for a, a player that was predominantly a right back. And perhaps that explains why he sort of shifted into centre back later in his career, playing for the likes of LA Galaxy. Um, he was pretty versatile and he was a Portuguese international, even though he was actually born in the African country, Mozambique. He was cultured 
as a defender and um, pretty physical um, in relation to his size, but also pretty comfortable on the ball, um, which made him attractive to the Portuguese national team. But I think that was almost part of his problem, really. He was somewhere between a defender with a physical presence and a defender that was kind of silky and, and could bomb forward from right back. And, and that in some way impaired the development of his career. He was almost a bit of a square peg in every round hole that he could possibly fit within a starting lineup. He had quite a nondescript start to his career, Abel. And actually, uh, it wasn't until he turned 26 that he got his first big move, which was to Everton. Uh, he signed for 1.5 million and he played a bit, but he was actually sold three years later to the rivals, Liverpool, for half the money. So that kind of shows you that his time at Everton wasn't a great success. He scored on his Liverpool debut against Ipswich Town, and he also scored against Bayer Leverkusen in the Champions League. Liverpool ended the 2001-2002 Premier League season as runners-up to Arsenal, but really that was the peak of his time at Liverpool, Abel Xavier. He started just the four, first four league games of the 2002-2003 season, uh, but then had some pretty big arguments off the field with Gerard Houllier and, and was dropped from the side. Do you remember Xavier being a bit of a hothead? I don't remember him specifically for being a hothead. I just, as I say, remember that iconic look. Maybe this is akin to me remembering Hartson in a Coventry shirt, but yes. I, I remember him in a Liverpool shirt and for him to only make 14 appearances for them is absolutely baffling. I can't believe it was that short a career with them. I think... Xavier, because of his look, and you're you're right to bring that up. He obviously had that bleach blonde hair, um, which was styled in so many different ways. If you look on Google Images, he had the comb over, he had the spiky, the afro, the slick back. He, he went for just about everything. Bit um, of a Mexican as well, I think. He did have a bit of a Mexican, um, and I think that's why people remember him. But he was also a maverick in the way that he behaved on the field. He was a hothead. And he fell out with pretty much every manager that he ever played for at some point in his career. Um, he was banned for performance enhancing drugs whilst at Middlesbrough, um, although he claims it was just from an antivirus medication. He criticised his manager, Rude Hullet, whilst at LA Galaxy while playing in the MLS. And he was given a six month ban for vociferous protest to a penalty decision when playing for Portugal in Euro 2000. And I saw this video. He's basically just manhandled the referee um, after the ref's given quite a harsh, admittedly, handball decision. So he was banned from playing for his national team for a significant period of time. I, I guess his maverick nature has continued beyond football, Abel Xavier. Uh, on retiring, he actually converted to Islam and changed his first name to Faisal. So he's Ooh. now known as Faisal Xavier. Um, he's doing quite a lot of humanitarian work related to his his new religion, if you like. So, yeah, certainly a bit of a character. And I believe he's now the manager of Mozambique, where he was born. So still involved in the game in some way. But uh, a maverick because he'll be remembered for things other than his football, I suppose. It's Henri and Bartes again. Oh, and again, Bartes is the loser, and Manchester United have certainly lost here. If you've been a keen listener 
uh, into the 11, then you might remember from our cult heroes episode that we mentioned a certain Robin Friday. Robin Friday was a maverick on and off the pitch. He played for Reading and Cardiff in what was quite a short career. Um, And he's obviously already been mentioned in an 11, so we didn't want to include him in the team. But we felt we couldn't go through the whole episode without some comment on him. We've been in touch with Stuart Kane. Now, Stuart is a very talented author and he's written Man Friday, the life and times of Robin Friday. And he's able to provide us with some fantastic anecdotes about Robin and why he was the ultimate footballing maverick. Hi, my name is Stuart Kane, and I am the author of Man Friday, the first half and Man Friday, the second half, otherwise known as the life and times of Robin Friday. Now, Ben's asked me the question, why should Robin be known as one of football's most iconic mavericks of all time? Well, that's a fantastic question. And it's interesting, given that Robin played no higher than the old second division. Now, Obviously, Robin's had lots of books written about him. He's been on the front cover of a best-selling record. He's had songs uh, written about him as well. And I think it's testament to Robin that he made it as a pro despite everything that he had going on in his life. He did live his life like a rock star. There is no doubt about that. There's obviously, he ended up in Feltham Borstal for 14 months. Um, he had his fall on the, the spike when he was doing the asphalting on some buildings um, and it pierced his backside and missed his heart and lungs by inches. Um, He managed to come back from that and a couple of months later he was playing again. Now let's go back to when Robin was 15. He was rejected by QPR and Chelsea. He said it made him feel sick but it still didn't put him off the fact that he wanted to make it as a footballer. For two years, he didn't play a proper game of football. He just went at it with his mates in the park. Um, He just wanted to play without the freedom of the referees and just have a laugh with his mates. That's, That's why he wanted to play football. He just wanted to have a laugh. He was almost an accidental footballer, really. And I think if we look at Robin's life, there are lots of anecdotes in there. And he did have a very interesting life. If we look at, you know, what was happening at Elm Park, the fans were bored until Robin Friday turned up and he just lit up Elm Park. Um, Whether it was scoring fantastic goals, running behind um, after scoring the winner against Rochdale and kissing a policeman on the lips um, or... His appearances in the Boar's Head uh, in Reading Town Centre and uh, his banishments from from various pubs in and around Reading. There are so many tales about Robin that give him this iconic maverick status. But let's focus on Robin as a footballer. He was an incredible footballer. I never watched Robin play, but I've read everything that has ever been written or said about Robin Friday. And it's probably better coming from somebody more qualified than myself. And that person is former Everton and England midfielder Peter Reid, who said recently in a tweet with myself that Robin was an enigmatic, wonderful character with breathtaking ability. Well, that's quite a statement from a man who played against Maradona at his peak. So, Robin Friday, one of the most iconic mavericks of all time of that there is no doubt 
some wonderful stories there from Stuart about Robin Friday. Thank you so much for sending those in. I think he's a fascinating character. I really enjoyed hearing about him when you mentioned him on the podcast before. Do you think that we'll ever see anyone like Robin Friday again? No. <laughs> no, I think put simply, I, I, I don't think we will. I think the money in the game, I think the media presence, I think the sheer popularity of football these days has led to a bit of a sanitization of the game. And it's quite easy for us to pick a Maverick 11 based upon players from the kind of the 90s and earlier. But it's actually really challenging to pick out Maverick characters off the field from more recent times. And I think that's just because there are so many rules in place. There's so much driven by money and sponsorship that the behaviour of players and managers is incredibly highly scrutinised. And I just think if you behave the way Robin Friday did, you would never really get the trust of an organisation like a kind of Manchester United or a Man City and be in the spotlight. I, I, what do you I, think? I just I think it's interesting you should mention Manchester United and Man City because, for example... Zlatan Ibrahimovic at Manchester United, Mario Balotelli at Man City. Both of those, I would say, are true maverick characters. Ibrahimovic is incredibly outspoken and opinionated and his ability on the pitch is just unbelievable. It's very out the ordinary and unpredictable. And I think that sums a maverick up very well. You have incidents like Mario Balotelli driving around Man City, throwing money out of his window, throwing a dart at a junior player. I feel like those two are absolute mavericks of the modern game. But I do completely agree with you that they are a bit of a dying breed. We're not seeing as many characters like those two. Yeah, I just think today with technology that allows the clubs to tailor their players' routines to the minute and also smartphone cameras today. So when footballers go out in public, they're pretty much recorded whatever they're doing. So if there's a scandal or if they're caught smoking or drinking, they're going to get judged and perhaps the club will, will enter disciplinary proceedings. And the likes of Robin Friday would be out on the town almost every, every day with girls, with drinks, with cigarettes, and he wouldn't face any repercussions. And I think that's certainly an element to do with why Mavericks don't really appear so much these days. Right, so if it's a Christmas tree formation, Arthur, that means we've got three next, so three across the midfield, and you're starting us off, I believe. Correct. I've chosen a deep-lying midfielder. Nice. Uh, and I've chosen Edgar Davids. Oh, yes. I mean, a maverick indeed. Couldn't leave him out. He's enigmatic. He's a colourful character. He was an incredibly successful player. I think we're in. We're, we're putting a lot of successful players in this eleven. Perhaps not so much nostalgic, but I think Edgar Davids does conjure up a lot of a lot of fond memories. He lifted the Champions League with Ajax and then won titles at Juventus, also appearing for Barcelona and Inter during a pretty illustrious playing career. He also finished fourth place in the World Cup with the Netherlands. And there were also stints in the Premier League with Spurs and Crystal Palace. He often stood out on the pitch, 
uh, due to his dreadlocked hair and the protective goggles he wore mm. due to the fact that he suffered from glaucoma. He was a combative and energetic, yet creative and skillful midfielder, uh, nicknamed the Pitbull by Louis van Gaal because <laughs> of his marking ability and aggression and his hard tackling style of play. Um, in 2004, he was chosen as one of the players by Pelé to feature in the FIFA 100, so the list of the world's greatest living footballers, all of which makes it all the more remarkable that he should come out of retirement in 2012 and sign for Barnet as player manager. <laughs> it was so random. It really was. So random. He was actually unable to prevent them from dropping out of the Football League. They were relegated on the final day of the season. He made nine appearances for the Bees in the Conference Premier in 2013-14 uh, before resigning as boss in January 2014. I just think it's a completely bizarre... We saw it with... Socrates uh, entering into the lower leagues of English football. It's the sort of thing I think I would do if I was a professional football player. I'd love to uh, end my career at such a random club as Barnet. I mean, obviously it ended in relegation, but it's so cool for the Barnet fans to be able to see a player like Edgar Davids playing in their, their team shirt. He, he certainly was a maverick, both in the way that he, um, like you say, how noticeable he was on the pitch, but also the, the way he played that combative approach. And the 98 World Cup was really where he kind of came to the fore. I, I used to love watching Davids play, a brilliant footballer. I did too. I quite liked the recollections of former Barnet striker Jake Hyde, who described David's typical habits as manager. He recounted, glasses on top of his head, laces undone, he'd always walk out 20 minutes in. So we'd be warming up every single day and we have no idea if we we're going to see him or not. We'd be out there training, doing the warm-up, and a couple of times in the winter, rather than coming out and training with the boys, you'd just see his 100 grand Bentley appear. It would be driving over all the pitches, down the slope, all the way to the back and continuing to drive onto our pitch. He'd be sat behind the goal with the heating on, feet up on the dashboard, watching us for 20 minutes. He wasn't even training, but he'd start himself on Saturday. <laughs> I just think it's completely bizarre, the idea of... He, he just decided that it would be fun little experience an experiment if you like I reckon he thought that he was probably going to be several cuts above the standard of the divisions that he was playing in I actually don't so much have recollections of what he was like playing in those leagues I imagine he still oozed the class but perhaps his body had started to fail him he was obviously quite old at the time I just think this whole experience combined with his fairly unorthodox bespectacled look show him to be just a true maverick and he'll be the the shield in front of our our back four yes of our very scary back four so far um with Dubois and Kilcline in the center playing um alongside Davids in a central midfield role um another player who perhaps is more noteworthy than our usual picks on the 11 and that's Hidetoshi Nakata yes very good so he was skillful, a sublime talent, slick and technically gifted, but agile too. Uh, a Japanese all-round sort of central attacking midfielder. Uh, he made 77 appearances for Japan 
most notably playing in Serie A for Parma and Roma. Uh, but if you just focus on English football yourself, um, then you might remember him from a spell at Bolton, which was quite random um, towards the end of his career. His attitude maybe held him back somewhat because he certainly had talent. He was named in Pele's FIFA 100 as well as one of the greatest living players of all time. He retired at just 29, pursuing other activities in his life. So plausibly a bit of a wasted talent, but certainly one that fans enjoyed to watch. I think probably the highlight of his footballing career came at Roma during an 18th month, 18 month stay in the capital. Uh, he came on in 2001 as Roma were chasing down the league title. They were 2-0 down uh, against what the, one of their rivals, their key rivals, Juventus, um, and things were looking pretty bleak. Uh, but on came Nakata. He went on to produce arguably the most iconic performance by a substitute in the club's history. In the 79th minute, he halved the deficit in stunning fashion, gaining possession inside the Juve half, dribbling forwards and letting fly from outside the box. Uh, and his powerful effort flew into the top corner. And then he was crucial in the, in the game's uh, levelling goal. Uh, another of his long distance shots was parried by van der Sar uh, and Montella tapped in to equalise. And it would be a season defining result because Roba would go on to win the title. But Nakatar always had ambitions outside of football, perhaps attributing his early retirement. He was interested in fashion. He used to attend runway shows throughout his time in football, wear designer clothes, and he did a fair bit of modelling. Uh, he had incredibly colourful haircuts and a distinctive style of dress. And he was somewhat seen as the Japanese David Beckham during his time uh, playing football, which again is partly why I see him as a maverick, because he was someone who uh, didn't really adhere to the norm in terms of what you'd expect from a top footballer. I always thought of the Japanese David Beckham as Shinsuke Nakamura, simply oh, really? because of his his ability over free kicks. I remember yes. him being absolutely lethal for Celtic. And actually, I think there was a period, I'm really pleased that you've you've introduced uh, Nakata to the team because there was a period where the Japanese attacking midfielders were just so good. They had Nakamura, uh, Nakata, they had Kaisuke Honda. They had some unbelievable attacking talents. And I feel yeah. like perhaps that was their golden generation. I don't know whether that's I think the case. it probably was. I mean, they were an exciting team to watch, but they never really had the success that that excitement warranted. And, and I do think Nakata is probably looked at by certain Japanese fans as someone who perhaps had more talent and could have produced more in footballing terms, but in the end was perhaps distracted. In 2015, he went on to set up a company uh, in Hong Kong that served sake, which is like a, a wine um, that they yeah. drink in, in Japan. So he's kind of started a little bit of a business venture there. Such was his fame. Um, Hidetoshi Nakata starred in a number of Japanese video games, and he was often the cover star uh, on FIFA out in Japan. Uh, and this is appropriate in many ways because he actually cites the anime series Captain Subasa as his primary inspiration in choosing football as a career. I don't know whether you've heard of Captain Subasa, Arthur. No, I haven't. So it's it's basically this football cartoon series, which is absolutely massive out in Japan. 
Um, and this player, Captain Subasa, goes through a number of different situations and storylines playing football against various teams across the world. And it's incredibly popular, particularly amongst kids. So this was the inspiration, if you like. I guess it's the Japanese equivalent of the hurricanes, but on a much bigger scale. I did a bit of research into Captain Subasa, and I found this quite entertaining. So I thought I'd just share with you some of the characters in in this particular manga series because it just struck me that they have far more kind of detailed and in-depth backgrounds than I was expecting from a cartoon let me know what you think so this is one character I picked out Singpracert Bunak who was a Thai international the description of him in Wikipedia Bunak is the captain and a defender for the Thailand national team originally a Muay Thai fighter he became a soccer player because the stadium is larger than the ring. Bizarre. He's one of an amphitheater. Yeah. Loves it. So another player here, Carlos Santana. How smooth. Um, he's Brazilian. He is a forward for the Brazilian national team. As a baby, he was abandoned by his mother in a basket and was adopted by an old couple that were later killed in a car accident. With no relatives, Barsole Barra, the owner of Barra FC, decided to adopt him and train him 24 hours a day. <laughs> that sounds okay. faintly, faintly Harry Potter-like. Yeah, and harrowing, <laughs> just like bizarrely yeah. death-related. And then a final one, just to leave you with. Mark Oweran of Saudi Arabia. Now, firstly, how many Saudi Arabians do you know called Mark? <laughs> but anyway, let's move on from that. So Oweran is the captain and defender for the Saudi Arabian national team. He's the descendant of the royal family, but he feels uncomfortable with his life, resorting to playing soccer. Again, what a background. I, I mean, this sounds great. And I, I think Captain Subasa is something we should all get into over here in the UK. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to check that out. I look forward to it. Thank you for the recommendation, Ben. I also have to say I enjoy that you are slowly but surely working your way through the cast of the secret tournament. Yes. <laughs> you had previously mentioned the other slightly niche member, which is Sol Ki Hyun. And now we have <laughs> now we have Nakata making up the numbers. Um, <laughs> the third midfielder in our Mavericks 11. I've gone for Paul Sean. Oh, Paul. Yeah. I mean, he sort of alternated between centre back and centre mid throughout his time, didn't he, in the Premier League? But I like that pick. That's good. Thank you. He did indeed. He signed for Wigan as a centre-back, but he was quickly moved into a centre-midfield position. From his brightly dyed hair and quirky fashion sense to his strong opinions and eclectic array of hobbies, he's always stood out for the crowd. He's been described by James Morrison as a weirdo and by Paul Jewell as a bit of a maverick. There we go. Oh, perfect. I presume that's James Morrison of West Brom as opposed to the singer-songwriter. You're correct. Very good, uh, very good guess there. He started his career with immediate success at Austria Vienna, winning the league and cup double under Joachim Lowe. And he actually played in eight different positions while he was at Austria Vienna. Incredibly versatile player. He actually fell out with Joachim Lowe because Lowe wanted him to play right winger. And I think Paul Sharner wanted a little bit more structure in his career. He wanted a position that he could call his own. And as such, Joachim Lowe moved him on. He had a brief stint in Norway, 
and then he signed for Wigan. Rarely has an unveiling photo summed up someone so brilliantly. He's wearing a majestic knee-length fur coat. He's sporting <laughs> blue and white racing stripes in his hair. I just think he has that brilliant look. And he backed it up with ability on the playing field. After a stint at West Brom, he re-signed for Wigan on loan from Hamburg later in his career. And of course, he dug the coat out of the wardrobe and he tweeted a picture of him in the coat saying, guess who's back? Which I just oh, love. Oh, I love He's that an entertainer. In his first season with the Latics, they finished 10th and reached the League Cup final. Uh, they were beating 4-0 by Man United. He said, I was so disappointed that I threw my silver medal into the Wigan crowd. At the end of the year, I got a Christmas card from the fan who caught the medal. He said, thank you very much for the medal. You made my day. Can you imagine <laughs> going to watch your team in a cup final and being thrown the medal? It's That's wonderful. just insane. I mean, the luck involved there. I, I would also say about Paul Shana. I mean, we ran Obscuro 2020, didn't we, while the Euros was on? And he was voted um, the second favourite European obscure player by the nation. So... A very popular figure as well as a maverick. Upon leaving Wigan in 2010, uh, he had the word thanks with an X shaved into his hair. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) It was a bit bizarre, but he did. And the Wigan fans loved it. His hair was his canvas, I feel. Throughout his career, he had loads of different colours of hair. A particular favourite of mine, actually, was when he had half brown half blonde hair and he split it in the middle i thought it looked very exotic kind of like a malteser well exactly there we go he said it sounds good when people say paul sharna is different i don't know if i'm eccentric but i'm different i'm not a normal footballer i don't have 10 wives or girlfriends i don't go out and have a scandal i'm (laughs) totally different (laughs) how many normal footballers have 10 wives (laughs) that's so true i think i think paul paul didn't really know what the yard mark was (laughs) no i'm not sure he did either (laughs) he was a bit of a maverick in terms of his behavior towards coaches outside of this country in 2003 i mentioned when he fell out with Jurgen lowe this was uh, followed by him announcing his retirement from international football in 2006 citing the national team's lack of professionalism National coach Hickersberger said that as long as he was in charge, Shana would not play for Austria again. He made a comeback under the following boss, Constantini, but criticised the retention of Constantini as coach after they failed to qualify for the Euro 2012, proposing himself as a better alternative, which I thought was quite quite a nice touch. But actually in this country, many people see him as a really, really hardworking professional. He's a True fan favourite at both Wigan and West Brom. I also quite enjoyed this story. There's a headline in this local Wigan newspaper saying, Mum's the word for Paul Sharna. Paul Sharna is aiming to celebrate Mother's Day by becoming the first player in Wigan's history to make 100 Premier League appearances. The eccentric Austrian utility player, who usually spends his spare time bungee jumping, prepared for his big day at the JJB against Hull, by surprising mum of four, Karen Wiseman, with a treat by spending a day doing her housework. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
Latics fan Karen from Ashford put her feet up as Shana, 29, did the washing, dishes, vacuuming, dusting, and even finished by making her a cup of tea after son Damien won the treat. <laughs> well, that's something else. What a man! Put himself in the shop window, happy to do things around the local community. All-round good guy and a real maverick in terms of his look and character. Certainly was. Um, he's also one of few people I've ever researched who lists billiards amongst his personal interests <laughs> on Wikipedia, which uh, is an underrated hobby. More footballers should get into that. King was looking, Heskey was too. Two saves by Carroll and Ilda Shana. We have two attacking midfielders behind the striker. Um, one, as per usual, is our up for grabs position. So that means we'll have some guest input at the end of this episode. Uh, but one is up to me. Uh, and I was toying with two players who actually played in the same Manchester City side, funnily enough, um, under Kevin Keegan. Those players were Ali Benabia, who I rejected in the end, to go for Ayal Berkovic. Yes, a very good choice, Ben Warden. So, uh, I mean, diminutive. Uh, he was innovative. He was creative. All the ifs. He made jilting runs from attacking midfield. He was a quality distributor of the ball. Uh, an Israeli playmaker uh, that is really, really good. Um, he started his career at Maccabee Haifa uh, in 1989, playing there until 96. So a fairly long spell in Israeli football. During his time with the club, he won league titles in 1990 uh, to 91 and also 93 to 94. And his performances for the club earned him a call up to the Israeli national team, as well as the MVP, Most Valuable Player Award, uh, in 93-94. He then adds a significant spell in the UK where people will remember him playing for Southampton, your club, Arthur, uh, West Ham United, Celtic, Blackburn, Man City and your rivals, Portsmouth. Any any memories of Berkovic playing for Southampton? No real memories of watching him live as I was, I think, probably about four or five. Yes. Um, but it was a season long loan and I think he made a big impression. I believe that we wanted to keep him but it was only alone and he didn't want to make it permanent. You know, the famous game we beat Man U 6-3. Mm. I believe he was instrumental and I think he scored a couple and was a big influence on the day. So fond memories um, of watching YouTube videos of him, but not in real life, I'm afraid. Well, that's good enough for this podcast. He was always the centre of attention, Lyle Berkovich, and he was perhaps most famous for a bust up with John Hartson. Uh, John Hartson kicked him in the head during this incident, which made back page news. Uh, and Berkovic said, if my head had been a ball, it would have been in the top corner of the net. Um, but he caused his own mischief a fair amount of the time during his career. Um, he was often getting in arguments with, with fans. He, he famously swore at a, a female member of the public who'd attended one of his matches uh, making a throat-slitting gesture at her during a League Cup tie at Main Road uh, against Crew Alexandra, although he claims it was in response to anti-Semitism. He also released a controversial autobiography called The Magician, 
And this is unbelievable, really, some of the things he says in this book. It's, it's well worth having a look if you're interested in that period of football. He accuses West Ham fans generally of being racist, saying they can't stand foreign players, which is, is quite the claim, given how many foreign players they've had throughout the years. He explains that Berkovich himself actually sat negotiating with Tottenham officials when he'd already signed a contract for West Ham. Uh, at one point, he broke off from the discussions to fake a phone call to his father, speaking in Hebrew to nobody to try and up his contract. Uh, he once also gave grades in Hebrew to the rest of his teammates in a bid for them to improve. Um, Ian Dowie, in this case, was deemed to be useless, whereas John Hartson curiously came out quite well. And grading seemed to be one of Isle's great passions. He was often going around the dressing room giving people marks out of 10 for their performance, <laughs> which, again, was classic maverick characteristic. And even as a boy, he was quite naughty, it seems, from this autobiography. He once said to his teacher, one day you will be proud that you were my teacher. Unbelievably, <laughs> unbelievable balls and arrogance from Isle. I mean, it proved to be true. I imagine it, it probably did because um, it wasn't just off the pitch that he was a bit of a maverick and a, and a performer. Um, he, he struck up this partnership with Ali Benabia, as I mentioned, at Manchester City. They began to play both playmakers, which was deemed to be a bit rogue in a sort of three, five, two formation when they were playing in the in the championship. And it was hugely successful. City and promotion back to the Premier League an emphatic style with 99 points and a record 108 goals, with Kevin Keegan saying, with these types of players, I can understand why people might think they can't play together, but I wouldn't have signed them both if I thought that. Berkovic was player of the year, and he was widely regarded as one of the, one of the best Manchester City signings of that era. Um, just the way he played, really, the way he was always offering himself to the, for the ball, the way he'd do things that were unexpected, the way he dribbled past players and took them on. He was a joy to watch. And I think if you could put up with him off the field, he was the sort of player you wanted in your side rather than to play against. So before we sort of circle back to that other centre attacking midfielder, who is going to be at the point of our Christmas tree, the centre forward, Arthur? I've decided to pick... Faustino Aspria. Oh, Newcastle legend. Had to be done. What a maverick that man was. Signed for Newcastle United from Palmer for £6.7 million in February 1996. He finalised the move during a snowstorm dressed okay. in a fur coat. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a bit of a, uh, a theme running through this 11 of people who are signing in coats. Absolutely. It shows that they are true mavericks at heart. At the time when he signed, Newcastle were ahead of Man United in the Premier League, although their lead at the top was narrowing. It was a bit of a difficult time to sign because they needed to keep that momentum up. They saw Espria as an incredibly exciting signing. And he actually made his league debut in Newcastle's 2-1 win over Middlesbrough at the Riverside. Aspria wasn't even expecting to play a part in the grudge match against Middlesbrough, choosing to enjoy a glass of wine in the team bus on the way to the Riverside Stadium. <laughs> what a character. To his surprise, Kevin Keegan sprung him from the bench as a 67th minute substitute, despite the fact he'd only flown into England that morning. 
in typical fashion, he ran rings around the Borough defence and he set up a Steve Watson goal, instantly establishing himself as the best player on the pitch. I think Newcastle fans were incredibly excited about his signing. However, his time at Tyneside was blighted by inconsistency and off-field incidents. Espria was blamed as one of the reasons Newcastle would go on to concede the 95-96 Premier League title to eventual winners Man United. I think it was unfair to lay the blame at Espria's feet. He had the ability to win games on his own if he felt like it. There's a sense that perhaps he would coast through matches against weaker opposition Uh, reflecting his laid-back nature, but would then turn it on for the big games, which I think is very out the ordinary for a striker. Mm. Often you get them performing against the smaller sides and then struggling to turn up on the bigger stage. Yeah. I think there's no arguing with his performances in those marquee matches. He caused havoc for the eventual champions in that first season. Um, In in the game that essentially won the title for Man United, they lost 1-0 Uh, thanks to an inspired Peter Schmeichel, who kept Aspria at bay. And then there was also a match against Liverpool at Anfield, in which he just seemed to be on a different planet altogether. If you look at YouTube videos of that game, Newcastle did lose, but he was unreal. He was absolutely unbelievable in that game, and he could have scored many, many goals. But all of these keepers really seemed to up their game against him. Not all of his best appearances, however, ended in disappointment. The next season, he put in possibly the greatest individual performance Newcastle has ever witnessed on the European stage. He scored a hat-trick against Barcelona in a famous 3-2 victory in the Champions League. I think that alone writes his name in folklore. He was a bit of a ladies' man after that 3-2 victory, he said. After that match, I woke up in bed with three Real Madrid supporting girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't laugh. That's not great, but it's, it's not brilliant. It's just so Faustino Espria, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. The funny thing was uh, his hatch against Barcelona. Those would turn out to be his last goals for the club at the end of January 98 with Newcastle struggling in the league and out of the Champions League. His time at Newcastle came to an end. He'd be sold back to Parma for six million, having scored a total of only nine goals in 48 Premier League matches. But on the European stage, nine goals in 11 European matches. I think those European appearances emphasise what a maverick he was, possessing just so much talent with the ability to turn it on in short, fleeting bursts, but never hugely consistently. Yeah, I mean, when I think of Faustino Espria, I... I think back to the Premier League years. He's just one of those players that stands out for me of watching highlights of um, of old Premier League seasons and one that I would have loved to have seen more of. You talk about him being a ladies' man. Did you know he's launched his own brand of flavoured condoms? I did indeed. They're guava flavoured, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> It is just completely bizarre what some of these footballers do after they finish play. He made headlines for non-footballing reasons over the years quite a lot. He, as you say, promoted his own flavoured condoms, which is just a brilliant thing to do. He also had a love for machine guns and he owned quite a few of them, like shooting them off. He also suffered the misfortune of his cows being stolen from his farm. Um, <laughs> he was said to be 
devastated by that outcome. He actually convinced a hitman not to kill legendary Paraguay goalkeeper Shilavar, who has appeared in a, a an eleven before. I think Shilavar had disappointed in a game, and a hitman was told to to kill him. And and Faustino had his friends back and managed to convince him not to do that. So an all round legend as well. He was just one of sports' most fascinating and compelling figures. Just always entertaining to watch. We left one position out, of course. That's the second attacking midfield spot in our Christmas tree formation. Uh, and as per usual, you can vote for who you want included in this position. We're going to give you a few options. Head over to Twitter, at 11pod, the word not the number, where you can place your vote. One of the nominations is from a very talented author called Matt Walker, who has kindly submitted something for us today. Uh, I have his book, in fact. It's called Europe United. Highly recommend heading over to Amazon and purchasing that. He's been on an incredible footballing journey, visiting 55 UEFA nations in just one season and telling us all about it in this fantastic book. Let's see who he submits into the Maverick Eleven. Hi, Matt Walker, author of Europe United and lifelong Fulham fan. And my selection for a Maverick player is Luis Boamorte, who was an exhilarating attacking midfielder. He ripped up uh, the championship in 2000-2001 for Fulham with Barry Hales and Luis Sahar in those attacking positions. He, he took a while to settle in the Premier League, but I would say that about one in every three matches, Luis Boamorte was absolutely unplayable. And it was in those two out of every three matches where he where he showed his other side, often getting booked. There were some terrible red cards. I remember um, a match against Ipswich where he missed a penalty and then got sent off for diving later in the first half. But he was iconic for Fulham for a few reasons. He got the only goal when we beat Chelsea uh, 1-0, which was the only time we beat Chelsea in 30 Premier League attempts. And he appeared on MTV Cribs in 2006, showing viewers around his, his modest house. Indeed, after he left Fulham at about the right time for West Ham, he lived near a friend of mine who proclaimed he was a, a true gentleman. And now, of course, he's a coach at Fulham uh, alongside our manager, Marco Silva, and it was only right that he received a yellow card um, for an altercation with the Middlesbrough coaching team a few weeks ago. Luis Boamorte, yes, of course we remember him. And um, yeah, yeah, a maverick for sure. Absolutely. Very good choice and good to have another Southampton boy potentially in the squad. Nice. Who have you submitted, Arthur, for your nomination? So I've gone for Curlon. Oh, yeah. He used to dribble the ball on his head. Exactly. I think you can qualify as a maverick if you're known for one particular thing. Yes. And it was that with him. Whilst at Cruzeiro, he became well known for his trademark skill, which was named the dribble da Fokina, uh, okay. or the seal dribble. Ah, yes. <laughs> so seal dribble. essentially, he would run along with the ball bouncing continuously on his forehead whilst running. Uh, opposing players would often foul him, uh, such as a situation in September 2007 when Diello Rocha Cello uh, struck Curlon with his elbow as he passed and was suspended for five matches. You can imagine, as a defender, how frustrating that would be, seeing this guy just like <laughs> waltzing through you, chipping it up on his head. Yeah, because it's not illegal, but it's almost kind of taking the mick to some extent. 
It is because there are limited ways in which you can deal with something like that. It's yeah. not Diego in the example that I just mentioned was incredibly frustrated by seeing this happen. So he elbowed him and he, he was punished for it. But mm. it's very difficult to actually get the ball off someone who's doing that. As a young player, he was a precocious talent. He, he starred in the 2005 South American Under-17 Championships alongside Marcelo, Anderson and Danilson. He scored eight goals in seven games and looked to be setting the world alight. Sadly, though, his career was ravaged by injury and a complete failure to live up to the comparisons that had been made with Ronaldinho. Uh, 11 teams in seven countries uh, he had, but with very little game time at each, such as the extent of his injuries and lack of professionalism. Uh, but I just wanted to give a nod to him today for being a true maverick due to that one particular quirk he had mm. uh, that we just haven't seen since. So my nomination is Curlon. Love that, Arthur. Great to get a South American in that vote over on Twitter. I've picked a player which pretty much every fan base loves to hate, and that's El Hadji Juf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was skillful and dangerous, but much maligned. Uh, he impressed playing for Senegal at the 2002 World Cup and he signed for Liverpool off the back of that. Also playing for Bolton, Sunderland, Blackburn, Rangers, Doncaster and Leeds uh, and being hated by opposition fans and sometimes his own fans throughout his career. Um, he flopped at Liverpool, really. Um, he signed for £10 million, but he failed to score in the 2003-2004 season but actually picked up 13 yellow cards and one red card during that time. Jamie Carragher described him as having one of the worst strike, strike rates of any forward in Liverpool history. Uh, but he actually did OK for Bolton, scored 21 goals during his time at the Reebok uh, and was quite exciting to watch. But the problem with Jeef was he was he was just not a very nice person, really. He had a long list of misdemeanours which included a number of spitting incidents at opponents, opponents during um, his time on the pitch. He got involved in brawls. He had motor accidents. He was involved in racist slurs and offensive gestures. At one point during his career, he claimed that all of African football was corrupt in a media interview, which led him to be banned by Senegal for five years once he'd failed to turn up to the disciplinary hearing. Yeah, the overriding memory for me of El Hasjouf was Neil Warnock branding him as lower than a sewer rat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> pretty think, low, isn't it? It is. I mean, Neil Warnock's not an unopinionated man. <laughs> no. But that is a bit of a, a testament to his character. Something tells me he might not get a lot of votes on Twitter in this yeah, poll. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. And just one final nod to a contribution from a man I'm a big fan of, former Southampton skipper, Klaus Lundekvam. No! Indeed. He very kindly got in touch and nominated a player for the eleven In attacking midfield, he wanted to nominate Matt Letissier. Obviously, he played alongside him, a quality player capable of scoring just frankly outrageous goals. Sadly, Klaus wasn't able to send in a voice recording because he's currently on holiday. Uh, he won't be part of the vote because he's already actually featured in an, 11, in an 11. And we know how popular he is on Twitter. So clearly he win that vote. 
So um, I think we're going to stick with the three nominations today. But thank you very much, Klaus, for getting in touch. Wicked to get Klaus contacting the podcast. Head over to at 11 Pod to vote. So on the bench, a few names that we had to leave out. There were just so many that I wanted to mention. Many of them yeah. actually players who I didn't see play. So I don't I don't feel I could do their maverick nature justice uh, when discussing their abilities. But names such as Frank Worthington, Len Shackleton, Rodney Marsh, uh, all absolute mavericks, uh, but but playing before my birth. Um, and then a few slightly more modern players, Eric Cantona, Gaza, Paolo Di Canio. And, and actually, I wanted to give a nod as well to Facundo Sava. Yes. The, the mask wearer at Fulham, which I he, very much enjoyed. He certainly was a maverick. Um, a really obscure one for the football anoraks that I nearly included was Piotr Schiavesky, who played several games for Birmingham City in the early noughties. Um, Piotr was actually quite distinctive looking, um, looked quite brutish. He'd actually go on to be an MMA fighter in Poland, which made him interesting, as well as being, um, bizarrely, on the front cover of the first ever FIFA. Wow. So um, Piotr Szyjewski, um don't ask me how you spell that. It's a nightmare, but look up Birmingham City Polish players and he'll be on there somewhere. He's worth a look. <laughs> But they didn't quite make the cut, and the Mavericks 11 runs as follows. So in goal, we've got Fabian Bartes. Left-back, Fabio Aurelio. Uh, Centre-backs, we've got Brian Kilkline and Dario Dubois, with a right-back, Abelic Xavier. Um, then in the midfield, we've got Edgar Davids, Hidetoshi Nakata, and also Paul Shana. Behind the striker, Ayol Berkovic, and then it's your choice. You've either got Curlon, El Hadji Juf, or Luis Boamorte. And then up front will be Faustino Aspria. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.